finish this sentence for me. If I just had blank, if I just had this, I would be happy. If I just had this, I'd be settled. I would have everything I need. I, I, I would, if I just could, now for some of you, when I say that, that is a thing for you. You know, you've worked all your life. We don't live close enough to the lake for this to t- step on too many toes probably, but, I, and if this is you, I, I'm sorry, but you've just wanted that bass boat right? You've known that guy that in his office at work, you know, his, his cubicle or his box, he's got hanging up the picture of that bass boat, and he's been working for years so he can get that boat out on the lake, right? Uh, some of you, it may be something like that bass boat. If I just had that, man, I could enjoy my Saturdays down there on the river on the lake, and that's, that would just be it for me. For some of you, that thing that if I just had this, it's not necessarily a thing. Maybe it's a relationship, You know, if I just had that girlfriend or that boyfriend, if I just had a wife or a husband, if I just had this, I know I would be happy. If I just had my kids back at home with me, if I just had, now some of you are like, if I just had my kids not at home with me, (laughs) if I just, then I'd finally be there. If I could just make it to retirement, if I could just, make it through school and finally get a job and get settled? What is that thing? Well, let me challenge you this morning. Some of you may already have that thing. You prayed for a lot of years and and God finally gave it to you. And so for you, the question is not if I just had, but what could I not imagine my life without? What would absolutely devastate me if I didn't have this? What's the thing that I turn to for comfort? What's that thing that that when everything else is falling apart, this is where I go to. This is the relationship, or or it could be food, it could be pornography, it could be any number of things. Some of those things are bad in and of themselves, right? There are some things we turn to or some things we're hoping for that are sin in and of themselves. There are other things, though, that are good things. There's nothing wrong with praying for a healthy marriage. There's nothing wrong with praying for your kids and hoping that God will restore that relationship or, or praying to get out of school and looking forward for that time when you get to start that career and honor Jesus through your work or whatever it is. Some of those things, they're not bad. But here's the problem with the good things that God gives us. Good things that God gives us, if we make them the most important thing in our lives, that makes them God things and then they become bad things for us because they become what our life is all about. So here's my challenge for you this morning. As we study this story through the life of of Abraham, as we're continuing what we've been seeing with him, my challenge for you, as you think about that, if I just had this, my question is, are you more concerned about getting or keeping that thing or the God who's going to give it to you? Where's your priority this morning? Are you more concerned about getting whatever that is that you want so badly or holding on to that thing that you've put your security and your identity into? Or are you so enthralled with that thing that you care more about that than the God who's the one who did it, the God who's the one who gave it, the God who blessed you with that thing? Now, as we pick up in Abraham's life this morning, we're going to see a demonstration where God put Abraham to the test 
and proved that God cared more about, or that Abraham cared more about God than the thing that he treasured the most. And to see that this morning, I'm hoping that this is going to challenge all of us to examine that same way. Now, this is going to be a pointless message like last week, right? Last, if you're not with us normally, um, it's, it's, that's a joke, guys. It's okay to laugh in church. So we were talking about it last week. I usually will have like three or four points in a sermon and we'll kind of walk through it a little bit by little bit. But in these passages, especially the way that, that God inspired Moses to write all this down, the story is so beautiful. The account and the way that it's written is so powerful. What I want us to do today, instead of drawing out different points, is we're just gonna walk through the text a little bit at a time. And we're gonna explain the pictures of what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 21 and chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to those passages, and I'd encourage you, leave it open because we're going to go through a bunch of Scripture today. And as we do, what I want you to do is I want you to put yourself in Abraham's shoes in this story. I want you, for you, it may not be a, a child like Isaac, but, but whatever that thing is that's so vitally important to you, watch what God called Abraham to do and ask yourself about whether you'd be willing to respond the same way. Because as we'll see at the end, God is worth it all. Now, as we're going through this morning, as we're here in Genesis 21, let's kind of set the stage a little bit. Remember, we've been going through the life of Abraham here recently. We're about done with Abraham's story. He is about to, to pass off the scene. We're going to continue going through the book of Genesis, though, to be able to pick up all of the stories of his children and grandchildren and how God worked through the remainder of the book. But as we're nearing kind of the climactic moment in Abraham's life, God had called Abraham to himself when he was about 75 years old. And over the years, we've seen God's made this promise that he's gonna make Abraham a great nation, which was saying something because Abraham didn't have any kids. We've been watching along the way as Abraham and his wife Sarah have made mistake after mistake, and yet God, through their flaws, has shown himself to be faithful to keep the promises that he's made. Last week, we saw him reiterate, now Abraham, 99 years old, been waiting for this promise for 24 years that God's gonna give him this child. And God reiterated that promise last week and said, in a year, I'm gonna come back, you're gonna have a son with your wife, Sarah. And so here you go, 99-year-old man, 89-year-old woman, and they're gonna have a child. So that's where we're picking up this morning. Pick up in chapter 21, verse one. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time, God had told him. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. By the way, do you notice how God keeps reiterating all these things? Uh, we know that Abraham and Sarah got off track and they decided they'd try to fix things their own way instead of what God wanted them to do. So he took another wife, a slave by the name of Hagar. He had a child, Ishmael. We'll see him in just a minute. So there is another son, but that son was not the son that the promise was made through. So here, finally, they have this child, this one that he said, the one that Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him just as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Verse six, Sarah said, God has made me laugh and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've born a son for him in his old age? Well, God did, actually. God told you that several times, but that's beside the point. I get it. Nobody, humanly speaking, would have thought this was possible. 
Now, before we move on, this is the high point of the story in some ways. This is absolutely beautiful. This is the culmination of 25 years of waiting. How many of you in here are younger than 25? Okay. None of these people, for the rest of you, you're like, oh, I think my back just hurt worse, right? None of those people would have been alive when the promise was made if God fulfilled it today for Abraham. 25 years is a long, long time. Even for somebody who's lived to be 100 years old, that's a quarter of his life. That's also not counting all of the years leading up where they were hoping to have a child. They had had decades of waiting. And so now here's this beautiful moment. Now, the, the child's name is Isaac. In Hebrew, you actually separate all the vowels. They, you don't blend them together like that. So it's pronounced Isaac. And it actually kind of sounds like somebody laughing if you say it right. I don't ever say it right. But if you say it right, it sounds kind of like laughter. It literally means he laughs. Because here you've seen all kinds of laughter. Sarah, you remember, laughed when God made the promise. We saw Abraham laugh when God made the promise. They both thought, this is crazy. It could never happen. And God said, he laughs. You know why? Because God laughs at us when we laugh at him. (laughs) I can show you, big boy. Let's do this. He said, who would have possibly thought that I, in my old age, Sarah said, would have been able to hold a child of my own. He has brought laughter and joy. Listen, guys, I was playing a little bit with, with uh, Faith and Derek's daughter, Shiloh, this morning. I was holding her out in the foyer. I broke her. Um, she, she looked at me and squinched that little face up. It just was gone. That was it. She'd already started crying a little bit, but I didn't make it any better, okay? I can't tell you how glad I am to be out of that stage, all right? I'm just going to be real honest with you. I love, we've got, our kids are 15, 11, and 7, and I love this stage. It's fantastic. I don't do the baby stage well. But if I had waited 90 years to hold my child, I can imagine it would be a beautiful moment. It always is. I mean, it always is. You can watch. My, my girls get like doughy-eyed when they see the little babies that are around the room right now. They just, oh, we got Willow over here. It's so, so cute. I love it. But here you've got this beautiful moment. They finally have what they've wanted for so long. If you'd ask Abraham and Sarah, what is it you want? I want a child of my own. They had it. They were there. And they lived happily ever after, right? No, this is not Andalasia. This is the real world. It didn't go perfectly from here. In fact, we see hints immediately that things weren't as they should have been. Pick up there in verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham held a great feast the day Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, drive out this slave with her son, for the son of the slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. If you remember back when Hagar and, and Abraham had Ishmael, you remember the animosity that was there. You remember she, Hagar rubbed it apparently in Sarah's face that she'd been able to get pregnant when Sarah never had been able to. There was this strife, this animosity that was so bad. Hagar ran away because she'd been mistreated so badly. Well, it looks like that that animosity didn't go away. Keep in mind the length of time that has passed here. In my head, for whatever reason, I always thought that Ishmael was a little boy when they were sent away because of the way that the story reads as they go away. But no, he's probably 15 or 16 years old by this point. 
We know he was 13 years old when God made the promise that in a year, he would send Isaac through Sarah. So that means he's at least 14 when the baby's born. They would nurse a child for two to three years at least. So he's 15, 16, 17 years old when he's making fun of his little baby brother. So Sarah says, that's it. I don't want him anywhere near. Drive him out. It's interesting to see Abraham's reaction because God had made it clear throughout this that he would take care of Ishmael, but Ishmael was not the son of the promise. Ishmael was not the one that God had said the promise would come through, okay? Verse 11, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. Isn't it neat to see, by the way, that Abraham's a good dad? He loved his son. Now, everything about the situation was bad and it was wrong and all these things, but but Abraham cared for Ishmael. And so when Sarah says, send him away, I'm tired of dealing with this, get him out of there, it breaks Abraham's heart. But verse 12, but God said to Abraham, don't be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I'll also make a nation of the slave's son because he's your offspring. So God said, I'm going to take care of them. It's gonna be okay. It's time for them to go. Now, I wish that we had time this morning to dive into the story because like we saw previously, there's this beautiful account where Hagar and Ishmael go off in the wilderness and there when everything seems hopeless and destitute, God shows up again and comforts and protects and preserves and reestablishes this promise that he's gonna make Ishmael a great nation. But read it on your own time when you get a chance because it's just absolutely beautiful. For us this morning though, we're gonna keep going with Isaac's story. So here we go. We've got Isaac is finally born. The house is filled with laughter because this baby is finally here. Now, a few years have gone by. He's growing. Everything's going great, except there's this deal with Ishmael. All right, let's get them out. Now the house is finally at peace. Everything's good. There's a fight that they have there at the end of chapter 21 with the people they've been living with. They're fighting over wells. Water, when you live out in the desert, is pretty important. And so, you know, if you've got livestock and things like that, you got to have a good source of water. So there's a fight about that. They get all that resolved. Okay, we finally have the water we need. House is good. There's no more jealousy between the wives. All that's taken care of. Life is good. And this goes on for some period of time that we just don't know. We don't know how long passes, but it does say that he stayed there for many days. It says at the end of uh, chapter 21, years seem to go by. We don't know for sure how old Isaac is at this point. Most scholars say he's old enough to participate in everything that's going on, but he's still referred to as a boy. So he's probably about 11 years old. 11 years, you've had seven or eight years of him by himself, enjoying this is the child of the promise. Now, keep in mind all of the layers of what's gone on with Isaac, right? So first off, it's just the fact that there's a barren, child, or a barren woman who's been able to finally have a child. So there's this layer of joy where God has seen fit to do that in, in their family, and he doesn't always do that, but, but here he has. And so there's, there's joy in that home because they've got this child. But, but remember that this child is the one that, where God made all of these promises to Abraham about how he was gonna be this great nation and he was gonna do all these incredible things through him. And so not only was this child their child, he also was the symbol of the promise of everything that was going to take place where all the nations who bless you will will bless them and and all those who curse you, I'll curse. All of those promises come down to this little kid. It's all riding on him. And by the way, 
This wasn't Abraham's idea. Abraham didn't set out to be a great nation. He didn't set out to do all these things. God in his grace and his mercy drew him to himself. God was the one who made these promises. God was the one who gave him the child. God was the one who was working. Now, why do I harp on all that? Because of what God's getting ready to do next. This, by the way, is one of the most powerful stories in the Old Testament for me. And when you sit down and you read the way and really study the way that God inspired Moses to record this account. By the way, remember, when we say story, we're not meaning a fable or a fictitious story. We're meaning an account of something that actually happened. There was an actual guy named Abraham who had an actual child named Isaac who actually was called by the real God to do these things, okay? But in this account, as God had Moses write it, he, he writes it drawing out some details for us that just make it incredibly powerful and poignant. As we do, I want you then to think about that thing. If I just had this thing, maybe you already have it. Maybe you're waiting for it. But look at what God calls Abraham to do with his. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham, which, by the way, Abraham didn't know. We know. We get to see the end of the story. But Abraham didn't know this was a test. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'll tell you about. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Just in case there's any question. You know, it's, it's like, well, well, so am I supposed to go get Ishmael for this? No, no, no. Your son, your only son, Isaac, that son, the son of the promise, the son that everything's riding on. I want you to take him and I want you to slaughter him as a sacrifice for me. I can't fathom what went through Abraham's mind. I imagine it was a pretty sleepless night. But you know what's incredible? There's no moment here where Abraham says, but, but God, no, the, the, no he's, he's the promised one. Maybe, do you want me to go find Ishmael? Do you, you want me to... God, what about me? Take me. Let him sacrifice me. I'm done. Like, I've, I've had a long life. There's no record of any of that. There's no debating. There's no discussing. Pick up in verse three. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son, Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. What did Isaac, or what did Abraham do? He got up early in the morning. Like I said, I doubt he slept much. He got up early in the morning. He split the wood that he would light to sacrifice his son. He saddled up his donkeys with the supplies and the knife he would need to sacrifice his son. 
I want you to feel this in this moment. The heaviness and the weight. As he makes these preparations and he's getting everything ready for the sacrifice. The wood, the knife, the donkey, takes a few of his servants with him. Verse four, it kind of gets worse. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. On the third day. Now we can argue about whether there's significance with that third day. It's a pretty significant thing throughout scripture. But but let's just think about it practically. He's been traveling over the course of three days. Maybe not three whole days, but at least parts of three different days. Over three different days, he's walking with his son. And everything he's going to need to sacrifice his son. As he's walking, he's getting closer every time. Three days to chew on this. Three days to turn around. Three days to call it off. But as an act of obedience and trust in the Lord, he just keeps walking and going and going with his most precious treasured thing in all of his life and knowing where this ends up. Said on the third day, he looks up and he sees the mountain, the destination where they're going. And here's where we get a picture of Abraham's faith, not just displayed, but in his words. Verse five, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. You catch it? Then we will come back to you. The boy and I are going, and the boy and I are coming back. Now, somebody might say, well, he's just lying because he doesn't want to make it awkward, doesn't want to tell him what's about to happen. But actually, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Abraham so deeply trusted God that he believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Now, here's the thing. You and I sit at the end of the completed word of God revealed to us we can look back and see times in the Old Testament where people were raised to life again, where somebody died and they came back to life. We're, we're on this side of the resurrection of Jesus where he died and was buried and three days later rose from the dead. We've seen it. We know the stories about Lazarus. We know the stories of those that Elijah and Elisha rose from the, the dead. We, we know all of these things. Abraham didn't. There is no account in Scripture prior to this point of somebody coming back from the dead. As you read through the book of Genesis, you know what you read? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. That's the part of those generations that we always skip over when you're doing your through the Bible in a year plan, where it's, you know, this person lived 136 years, and he had this kid, and this kid, and this kid, and he died. That's all we've known up to this point. But Abraham so deeply trusted the Lord he had such great faith in God that he said, God, you've promised this is the child that this promise will be carried out through. And you've told me that I'm supposed to sacrifice him. So I'm supposed to kill my own son. And you've, you've got to be able to raise him from the dead. Then 
You have to. So the boy and I are going to go. And the boy and I are going to come back. What incredible faith. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. We'll come back to that in a minute. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Isaac's a sharp kid at this point. We've seen the wood. We see the fire starter or or the torch that they have lit, whichever it is. We see the knife. But, Dad, there's something missing. Verse 7, then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father? And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I'm sure Abraham was more stoic than I am. Most every guy that I know is. But dad, imagine your 11-year-old looking you in the eye and said, dad, where's the lamb? And you know. You know. I don't think it's a dodge. I think it's in faith that Abraham responds. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself, will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham knew that Isaac was God's provision. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew that God could raise him from the dead. God knew, or Abraham knew God could provide. He knew. He didn't know what it was going to look like. In all of this, here's what we see. We were talking about this Wednesday night in the book of James. Abraham may have very well had questions about what was going on about what God was calling him to do. How was this going to work? How is God going to make this right? But what he never doubted in this, from what we can see, is the character and nature of God, right? He had questions, but he didn't doubt the character of God. He knew that God was one who gives life. He knew that God was one who keeps promises. He'd seen that over 30 years already. Keep in mind, by the way, this isn't something that God did to Abraham in chapter 14, right? God called Abraham in chapter 12. But it's 30-some-odd, 40-some-odd years since God first called Abraham that he puts him to the test in this way. It's, it's 30 or 40 years of walking with Jesus and seeing him do so many different things in his life, showing up time and time and time and time again And in light of that, he says, I don't know how this is happening. I don't know what's going to take place, but I know that the Lord himself will provide. I know he can bring him back from the dead. I know this is what he's called me to do, so I'm going to do it. The story builds to this moment, verse 9, when they arrived at the place that God had told them about. Abraham built the altar there and arranged his wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. When do you think Isaac figured out what was going on? 
I think he asked the question after they left the other guys because we've been walking for a couple days, Dad. Dad didn't take a lamb with us. Maybe, maybe we're going to stop in one of these villages. He'll buy one. When, when we leave these guys, we're, we're headed up into the mountains. There's not anybody around. Dad, where's the lamb? He gets up there and Abraham starts to prepare the altar. We don't know what transpired. Some have said that this is an indication of Isaac's faith as well and that he's willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed. He's a strapping young man at this point. He's 11. He's strong. His dad's 100 years old. There's a chance he could have fought back. But instead, he allows himself. It could also be, I mean, old man strength is a thing, right? For those of you who've never been around an older gentleman who's worked hard his entire life, uh, they can send you to the floor in a heartbeat. So it could be that he still wasn't big enough to take his dad. He may not have tried. We don't know. We don't know. But what we know is that Abraham, in faith, took a rope and tied his son's hands and his feet and laid him on a pile of wood. Can you imagine it? Looking at the eyes of your child. Who's your child? And who's the symbol of every promise that God's ever made to you? The actual fulfillment of it. And then drawing the knife and ready to drive it into your son. In that moment, Abraham demonstrated that his greatest treasure was not that child stretched out on the wood. His greatest treasure was the God who had given him that child. His hope was not in Isaac in that moment. His hope was the God who had given him Isaac could give him Isaac again. And so he readied himself to make the unthinkable decision. As he did. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your only son from me. I'd have just dropped to the ground. <laughs> and it would take everything that you had to be ready to take the step of obedience. And God says, stop, don't touch him. And I would have just collapsed right there. That a minute. God said, now I know. Now I know that you fear me more than anything else because you've not even withheld your own son. Now, remember, like we talked about with Sodom and Gomorrah, God knows everything. God didn't have to come down to Sodom and see everything. He already knew it. But God sometimes chooses to, to give us these pictures and these examples and these illustrations and, and comes to, to show and to verify things. So in this moment, he knew that Abraham had this faith. But you know who probably didn't know he had that faith? Abraham. A faith tried is a faith proven. 
You know, it would be one thing for me to sit here and tell you that I am a master bass fisherman. I can catch whatever I want to catch, whenever I want to catch it. I can tell you that all day long. Now, put me out on a boat on Claytor Lake, and I can prove to you how bad a fisherman I am. Okay? I can boast all day long. I can think I'm whatever I think I am. But until that's tested and tried, I don't really know. You see this all the time when guys sit there and talk about carrying concealed. I'm sorry, I'm just going to go out there and say it, right? Man, I tell you what, if I'd been there, if I'd have been carrying that day, until bullets start flying, you have no idea how you're actually going to respond. It's just part of it. Now, I hope if you are ever put in that kind of situation, you can do whatever you need to to save a life. I'd love to think I'd do the same. But the reality is nobody knows until it happens. In this moment, God put Abraham to the test. Said, this is your most precious possession. This is the greatest thing in your life. This is what I gave you. But like Doug was talking about earlier, it's similar to the question that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than Isaac? Do you trust me? And Abraham could have thought all day long that he did, but until that moment where it was tested and tried and proven, Now, here's what happens. God provides a ram as a sacrifice. Verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went, took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Now, what God's doing for his nation here, this is gonna be, the Israelites are gonna read this and they're God's special people that God called out of Egypt and redeemed as his firstborn. So they're giving, he's giving them a picture of the fact that just like Abraham was able to, to take this ram instead of Isaac, so God has taken Israel as his firstborn. And, and the same thing that we're gonna see throughout all kinds of different pictures throughout the Old Testament. In this, there's this beautiful moment where God God's weaving all of these stories together. But for Abraham, it was a test to see, do I really believe that God is enough? So what is it that if you just had it, if I just had this, if I just had peace, if I could just get past this struggle with anxiety, or or if I could just restore this relationship, or if I could just, do you want that or do you want God? Which is more important? See, Jesus would later say that eternal life is that we would know him. By the way, he's a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children. So often as we rejoice in him and we trust him first and foremost, he does allow us to have wonderful things. He does restore marriages. He does give us peace. He does give us joy. He does give us jobs and even the occasional bass boat. But... The question is, am I following him so I'll get that or am I following him because I love him? You say, Sean, I don't know. This seems so cruel. How could I ever follow a God who would be so cruel that he would take this guy and make him go through all of this for a charade? Well, as I've already said, there's a lot that God was accomplishing through this, but there's one more. As you think about this cruel God who would do this sadistic thing, keep in mind that he was giving us a picture. 
there is another firstborn son, his one and only son, the son of God, who would come. See, as Abraham is sacrificing Isaac, we see in this traces and shadows of what Jesus is going to do for us. Jesus is referred to as the monogenes, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. As the Son of God, he comes in the flesh. He lives among us, he walks among us, and does nothing deserving of death. And yet, he becomes the sacrificial lamb. Even down to the fact, listen, this is why I started choking up on this one. Verse six, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Do you see the picture here? When Jesus was going to the cross to die for our sins, God literally took the the wood on which he would die. He was forced to carry his own cross that he would be sacrificed on. God put that on Jesus for him to carry. He laid the wood of the sacrifice on his own son. But when it came time to plunge the knife into the heart of his child, he didn't send another ram. Instead, he allowed the son of God to be put to death on a cross for the sins of the world. For Abraham, he stopped Isaac from being killed, but for his own son, he allowed him to die in my place and in yours. This is not a cruel God. This is a God who loves more deeply than we can ever begin to fathom. You know, there's this, uh, this song that we sing sometimes that says that, that when Jesus was on the cross, says the father turned his face away. I don't know that that's accurate. Because the Bible tells us that while Jesus was on the cross, he was taking the wrath of God for our sins. The father, like Abraham, is putting Jesus to death at this time. Now, guys, I don't understand Trinitarianly how all this works. I, I, the, the union here, I, it's incredible to think our, but, but this is the depth of God's love. This is the mercy of God that he would sacrifice his one and only son for us. So when God says that thing that your heart thinks is the thing that will satisfy it, that job, that status, that relationship, that whatever, whatever, it's never going to be enough. But I tell you what is enough, that you were loved so deeply by the God who created you, who shaped you, who loves you more than you could ever fathom, would die in your place and be raised from the dead to give you new life, to give you purpose. So that now, guys, there's a lot of things in my life. I've had to been wrestling through this passage about what would that be for me? What's the thing that I want more than anything else? I've got a tremendous family. I can't imagine life without any of them. I have all these blessings. But the question that I have to answer and the question that you have to answer is if God took every single one of those blessings away, would he be enough? Here's what I want you to do this morning. In just a few minutes when we close and we leave, the world gets really loud really quick. 
You start thinking about where you're going for lunch. You got to get ready for work tomorrow. You got papers to finish for school, whatever it is. So we want to take the next few minutes and just do business with God. I'm going to invite Micah to come on up. And I want you to just go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute. Now, as you do this this morning, if you're not used to being around here, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, it's not because we're doing anything weird. What we want you to do is we want you to have the freedom to be able to respond to God without the distraction of other people moving around and things like that. So here's what we want you to do. I want you to take the next few minutes and I want you to think about what is that thing that I would have said, if I just had this, I'd be happy or I'd be satisfied. And honestly, before God, ask the question, do I care more about getting that than I do about the God who gives it? And if he starts revealing that you do, then this is your moment. Say, God, I want to be like Abraham. And so I'm laying this thing on the altar as a sacrifice for you. Whatever you choose to do with it, this is yours. However you choose to work, I'm trusting you. So God, today, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I know you're strong. I know you love me, so I'm laying it at your feet. I want to give you just a minute to do that with God. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the the thing that you need to offer is your life. Say, God, I, I can't do this on my own. I know that... He's talked about, you're this God who loved me so much, you'd sacrifice yourself for me. So I want to lay that down and just lay my life down and ask you to take it. Help me to follow you. Help me to be whatever you've called me to be, to do whatever you've called me to do. I trust you today. If you feel like you need to kind of make the outward posture of your body reflect the inward posture of what's God doing, you can come down here and you can make these steps and altar and just offer that thing to God as you kneel before him here. You can do that where you're seated, wherever you do are, whatever you need to do to respond. You feel the freedom to do so. If you want to talk to me, I'm down front. In just a minute, I'll close this. Father, we thank you that you had so worked in Abraham's life that he was willing to trust you even with his most treasured possession or treasured object in his life. There may be somebody in this room or somebody who's watching us online who is still holding on to something. They just, they can't imagine letting it go. God, would you through your spirit give them the freedom to lay that thing on the altar? to find their hope and their peace and their joy in you. For those who've made that kind of commitment today, would you help them to walk in that? To keep trusting you day by day with that situation or that scenario, honoring you, knowing that you're in charge, knowing that you're good, 
God, would you, would you move? Thank you that you, as we come to you, you're not a God who's cruel. You're not a God who just does stuff to do things, to torture people. But you're a God who through Abraham's obedience gave us a picture of your son's sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in our place. Thank you that he carried the wood of his cross as far as he was able. That he hung and died for me. God, would you draw us to yourself this week? Help us to go out from here living like you are most important. Not what you'll do, not the warm fuzzies we have when we follow you or anything like that, but God, that you, you are enough. You are what matters. You are what we need. So God, help us to know you better this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.